in a world filled with hot takes, social media insiders, and questionable talking heads, three college students will take on one mission, to tell the world why it's wrong about the NBA. You're listening to U92 The Moose. Beyond the Arc starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again. We are coming at you with episode six of Beyond the Arc. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon, and you're going to be hearing this on the radio and probably in podcast format on Wednesday, the day after. Podcast maybe a little bit after that, but we're coming at you with episode six of U92's only NBA show. It is Beyond the Arc. I am Daniel Woods, as usual, and as usual, I'm joined by My typical two co-hosts, both back in Morgantown, West Virginia, and they're both back on this show, Luke Wiggs and Nick Severini with me. Luke, how are you doing today? Doing just fine. Uh, I'm thankful to finally be rejoined by the third member of our broadcasting team, uh, Sonic's own Nicholas Severini. You know it's a good time when all three of our powers combine. And as you said, Luke, once again, uh, the king of Morgantown Sonic the Glizzy Lord himself. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> oh, I know someone who's not sharing this pod on Twitter after that one. <laughs> Nick Severini is back <laughs> on the podcast after a week off, uh, predisposed by his duties at Sonic. Uh, Nick, despite that, that little pot shot I took there, how are you doing today? Well, it's an honor and a privilege. You know, I went from the Glizzy Gobbler to the NBA talker, so I'm uh, very excited to get back into the groove of things. And, hey, what a time to get back, guys. I mean, NBA playoffs, it's uh, in full force at the moment. There's been some shockers already. Absolutely, and that's what we're going to get down to. We've got a kind of an action-packed show for you folks today. We've, we're going to break down uh, really everything going on in the NBA playoffs right now, and we're going to follow that up with a little bit of an interesting topic, something that we've been uh, throwing back and forth in our little circle of friends over the last week or so uh, to finish up uh, the radio episode. And then, of course, our typical draft bonus segment that only the podcast listeners are going to get, breaking down the Pacific Division team's draft needs today. But let's start off right away with uh, what's going on in the Eastern Conference playoffs. We start with uh, the one-versus-eight matchup, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Orlando Magic. Last week when Luke and I were on here, we were coming off the Magic taking game one of that series. Uh, the Bucks not looking very good, but they've turned it on. It's a 3-1 series now. Milwaukee looking to finish this one off pretty soon. Uh, Luke, I'll look at you. That, that game one looked really bad for the Bucks. They've turned it around uh, to an extent here, but still a little scary to see them falter this early in the playoffs. Yeah, they're starting to show some cracks and some signs of wear and tear, you know, returning to the bubble and a little bit lower. We thought that Brooke Lopez was going to be a liability after he performed well in game one. He's been a little bit better since then. It was refreshing in game four uh, to see Chris Middleton put up 21.10 rebound performance because, you know, he was memed a little bit coming back from the break saying he hadn't picked up a basketball. But, you know, it, it's a good thing. I mean, this is the reward you get from earning the number one seed is you can coast a little bit in the first round and kind of shake off the rust. Uh, and the Bucks have one more game to do that before they move on to the second round. A little scare early on. Had they played 
just about any other team in the Eastern Conference, this could have been a much different series. But uh, since it's the Magic, since it's the 1-8 matchup, uh, they'll probably just put this behind them as a blip on the radar. But, you know, we, we talked before we came on the air, Kendrick Perkins says the Heat are going to dethrone them in the second round. Uh, that's something to keep your eye on uh, uh, as the second round gets underway here in the next couple of days. And absolutely. Uh, Nick, Luke mentioned a little bit of a bounce back thus far for Brooke Lopez after he looked absolutely dreadful against Nikola Vucevic in game one. He's kind of gotten back into that, that role as a seven-footer who can defend in the post some, can, can score out with his back to the basket, but really knock down that corner three. Uh, for the Bucks, I think he's one of the most important pieces on this roster when it comes to them making a deep playoff run. And I think what we've seen from him in the last couple of games is what they're going to have to have moving forward. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, Daniel. I mean, the fact of the matter with the Bucks is that they really haven't really convinced us in this bubble. And even though they've kind of stood out a little bit in the later games against the Magic, you know, you have to realize what the Magic's identity is. They have a really good center in Nikola Vucevic and then a combination of very mediocre guard play that's kind of led them through this. And it was able to match the Bucks once in this series. So a lot of question marks still. I think the Bucks are still really looking for that option later on in the game when because what we've seen is that Giannis really can't do it later on can he I mean we've seen it in the bubble we've seen it in the playoffs even and I think um they're still really vying for that just any player that could be able to create his own shot now Middleton's kind of the poor man's version of that but he needs to build up that consistency if Milwaukee's able to make a a very deep run in these playoffs that's that's really interesting talking about Giannis because a lot of times we've talked about the Denver Nuggets as somebody that doesn't have a guy to finish at the end of games. But the more you think about it, Giannis really struggles late in games, especially in, in tighter games in the playoffs. Just he doesn't have a jump shot to fall back on. Therefore, he can't create as much off the dribble unless he gets right to the basket, which is an interesting dynamic for me, especially when this team is built to have shooters around him. But you can, you can sag off, stick somebody and help defense in the paint. Luke, I don't know what you think tactically this team, if they need to do something different, especially if they put themselves in a position where they're playing tight games in serious situations late in a, late in a series, deeper into the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely right. The touch of the concern there, you know, Middleton is a player that you could lean kind of mention that, uh, uh, but you know, that's not somebody necessarily you want to have the ball in his hands for the end of the series. One thing that's concerning about Giannis he only shot 63% from the free throw line this year. So if you get in that late game situation where it's time to space and let Giannis go to the rim, if he goes to the free throw line, it's really not a guarantee like it would be with a James Harden. That's something that I expect him to add as his career goes on. Giannis has gotten much better uh, each year-to-year basis. He, he keeps adding more to his game. As for this season, that becomes a little bit of a concern. Plays so physically dominant that you just like to say a blowout team, you know, down one with a minute to go in a game. Uh, that's absolutely a concern as to who would take that shot. In terms of personality, best case, let Jan do what he does, but his concerns uh, don't make that a sure thing. Yeah, the Bucks. Uh, I think you guys would agree they're in pretty good shape to finish this series off in, in game five, but it, it's definitely something to keep an eye out on as they go deeper to this playoffs, especially with some teams looking a lot better than I think we were expecting them to. Some teams will get to a little bit further down the line that they're going to need another step up, a little more convincing step up 
to to really be considered a, a team that can make a run to the finals, even though they are the number one seed in the East. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think um, you look at the you look at some of the other teams, and even in the East, I mean, the Celtics and the Heat, because obviously those are the two teams that um, are being compared to the Bucks a lot, especially the Heat, obviously as they're playing them in the next round, if um, they complete that series against the Magic, but. Those two teams specifically, along with the Raptors, if you want to throw them in there as well, have just been clinical. I mean, Miami sweep the Pacers, Boston sweep the Sixers, and the Raptors sweep the Nets, you know, in, in pretty convincing fashion, I might add. And you don't see Milwaukee really being as convincing. And I just think once it comes to those matchups later on in the playoffs in the second and third round, if they get there, it's going to take a statement. And I don't think Milwaukee's made that statement yet. And that's that's a really interesting point you bring up there, Nick. And I, I want to circle back to it because uh, as a Nets fan, I'm sure you were paying a lot of attention to their first-round series with the Toronto Raptors. And like you said, the Raptors sweep that one. They win it in four. They're moving on to face the Boston Celtics. Uh, watching this series uh, from the perspective of a Brooklyn Nets fan, uh, it, it looked like they, it was a team that obviously was overmatched talent-wise. What what were you seeing that the Toronto Raptors were able to make that statement like you were talking about in this series? I mean, just having an incredibly deep bench and take advantage of Brooklyn's faults. I mean, we look at Toronto. I, this is a team that had kind of their backs against the wall, come, you know, being the reigning NBA champs, but losing their best player. Nobody really knew what they would be. I believe in, my, in our predictions, I had – I think I had them in seventh or sixth. Like, I did not rate this team that much uh, at all. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people were like that as well with the Raptors. But the way they got it done is just being clinical down low and just being one of the best all-around teams. They, they literally have all the pieces. I wouldn't say they have that superstar, but they have a lot of fantastic pieces. You know, Pascal Siakam is your consistent 25 and 10 guy. And centered around him is a group of role players that can really succeed and get it done, especially later on in games. And I think that was the difference in this uh, series versus Brooklyn. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you there. The, the depth the Raptors have is what, what stands out about them, I would agree. I had some questions about their ability to score off the bench going into this, this playoff series, but they, they proved that's not an issue. Serge Ibaka is probably, for my money, one of the best bench bigs in the league. Norman Powell gets it done on both ends of the floor. But then you go into that starting lineup, and you've got Kyle Lowry, who sprained an ankle in game four of that series. He's up in the air for game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Boston Celtics. Uh, Luke, I know you've had a lot of discussions about the merits of Kyle Lowry and where he ranks, amongst the, ranks among the point guards of the Eastern Conference. But that's a huge hit going into an Eastern Conference semifinal series if they're without one of their best players. Yeah, it really is. It starts to chip into that depth that we just spent the last couple of minutes praising. Uh, Kyle Lauer really is the straw that stirs the drink. I mean, say what you want about him as a player, and we can have that discussion another time, but him elevating himself to being one of the better playmakers in the league is one of the keys uh, to allowing this team to do what it does. It allows Fred Van Vliet to work off the ball. It allows Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi. They're more than just rim runners, but allows them to be rim runners when they need to. And then this bevy of shooters that come off the bench. Serge Ibaka, we just talked about, has turned himself into a more than serviceable three-point shooter along with Matt Thomas and guys like that. It's a big loss in terms of their personnel. I wouldn't say that would change my prediction of them beating the Celtics in the second round. I think it makes it a little bit harder. 
it allows Marcus Smart to key in on just Fred Van Vliet instead of going back and forth against those two. But to be fair, Marcus Smart hasn't had the greatest playoff as it is right now. Uh, so Lowry's a big loss if he's going to miss time. Uh, I don't expect him to miss much time, just the first couple of games with a minor injury. Uh, but, you know, it, it gives the Celtics a little window of opportunity to try to jump in and steal one of those early games, uh, force it to be a longer series, and give them a better chance uh, to try to dethrone the NBA champs. Yeah, that's that's the thing for me with with Kyle Lowry out is it, it extends the series for me, like you said. That's uh, the one place where I see it having an impact. I still see this this Raptors team having I wouldn't say no issue dispatching the Boston Celtics but I see a, a pretty clear gap between these two teams uh, largely because of the depth that the Raptors have uh, going into this one I mean you have a guy like Fred Van Vliet who is in the starting lineup who is a major contributor but you have a guy like that that can come off uh, and he he played a, a more limited role in a blowout win in game four but you've got a guy in Fred Van Vliet that can come out, score 30, 24, and 22 in the first three games of that series uh, and do extremely well from beyond the arc, except in that second game. Uh, he shoot, in, in game two, he goes three for 11 from three, but the rest of the series, he goes eight for 10, six for 10, and two for three. Uh, this is a guy that is, is going to be relied on here, and he was great throughout the regular season, but it gives me a little bit of pause when you've got a guy that is, is that – hot at one point the possibility that he could fall off if you're relying on him that much gives me a little bit of pause about this team not not enough to change uh, my prediction on this series but just enough to to make me think a little bit more about it yeah definitely so uh, and it's going to be interesting to see the matchups on the wings as well as another thing we want to talk about and like I said the the Marcus Smart versus Fred Van Vliet matchup is going to be key when you're talking about this series and when Lowry is going to be able to come back. And it's going to be interesting to see who slides into that starting lineup if they put the ball in Fred Van Vliet's hand and they let Norman Powell start at the two. Um, and to go along with Pascal Siakam and OG and Anobi matching up with uh, Jalen Brown uh, and Jason Tatum is probably the way that's going to go unless they put Powell on Tatum. Uh, again, like you said, Daniel, I don't think it's enough to shift the series but maybe add an extra game into the mix when we're talking about, you know, how long it's going to take for the Raptors to move on. Yeah, those wing matchups are, are another thing I want to talk about, and I'll, I'll direct this to you, Nick. I like just about anybody in the Eastern Conference. I like the, the Toronto Raptors the best to be able to match up with Brown and Tatum because you have Norman Powell, who's a smaller guy, that hopefully with a healthy Kyle Lowry you'll be able to bring off the bench. But then in that starting lineup, you've got OG Ananobi, and Pascal Siakam, who both have the length, strength, and athleticism uh, to be able to at least slow those guys down, if not uh, stop them entirely. Uh, this is a Portland – or not a Portland team, excuse me, a, a Toronto team uh, that despite losing Kawhi Leonard, I think uh, it's, it's gone – it's not underrated, but it's become even more clear to me how well Masai Ujiri has built this team for success and for long-term success – with some of these guys and they match up well with just about anybody in the East. Yeah, they definitely do with their, just the ability to play all around and just shift their game plan, you know, depending on who they face. And I think we're going to see that in against Boston rather, because you look at what the Toronto team has, they match up well with Boston, but 
I mean, they just have that slight advantage in terms of quality, I believe, in, in all aspects of that starting lineup and even when it turns to the bench. The chess match between Nick Nurse and Brad Stevens is probably going to be the most interesting aspect of this series. But when you look at how Toronto is lined up to answer your question, Daniel, it really uh, plays into their favor when they're facing, honestly, any of these teams that are still in contention uh, for this Eastern Conference playoffs. And, Daniel, you'd have to say when you're looking position by position, let's just assume just for this thought exercise, Van Vliet's at the one, Powell's at the two. Uh, Powell over or Tatum over Powell is probably the only clear advantage I would give the Celtics, at least in terms of the starting lineup. You know, we talked with uh, Matt Drabble, who's on our staff, about Marcus Gasol getting a little bit more limited. He doesn't move around as well. He's not as flexible as he used to be. That doesn't really matter when Daniel Tice is your big, you know. Yeah, but Gasol had some problems in a series where Karuks was playing the five or Jared Allen was down there able to use his quickness and get some, uh, uh, get some boards away from him. But, uh, Daniel, I think you'd have to say that position by position, outside of the two with Jason Tatum, uh, I think I'd have to give the edge to the Raptors all the way around. I would agree with that. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how Brad Stevens deploys these lineups a little bit more as we pivot to talking about the Celtics a little bit more. They sweep that series over the Philadelphia 76ers, who we're going to talk about a lot later <laughs> in the show. But you look at the the lineup he put out there in game four. He goes with Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart in the backcourt, slides Jalen Brown up to the three, plays Tatum at the four, and Daniel Tice at the five. I know we all think matched up with Marcus Gasol, Daniel Tice is obviously a guy that Gasol is going to be able to deal with fairly easily, but you go through the rest of that lineup and it's, it's an interesting thing to me to see how Brad Stevens is going to deploy this. And Nick, like you said, the, the chess match between two of the best coaches in the league is going to be an underrated storyline that I really want to watch. Yeah, and if the Celtics are to win this series, that's what it's going to fall into. Because we, we've talked about for years at this point about Brad's, uh, Brad Stevens' prowess as a head coach. I think that's what it's going to take, his ability to turn end-of-bench pieces like Daniel Tice into giving him meaningful minutes and contributing meaningfully, especially in that series against the Sixers. It, it's just so un, It's such an underrated aspect of Boston's game. You know, Jalen Brown and uh, Jason Tatum get all, the, uh, get all of the credit for Boston success, but it's Brad Stevens's ability to turn that team into a perennial playoff contender that really makes Boston what they are. And speaking back about Mark Gasol a little bit more and about that center position with Daniel Tice, Luke, I don't know about your thoughts on this. And it's, it may be even a bit of a stretch because I'm talking about a guy that didn't even play in game three of that series, uh, played 23 total minutes in the three games he did appear in. You want to talk about an athletic big that could cause Mark Gasol some trouble running the floor. The guy that jumps off the page to me is Robert Williams for the Celtics. Obviously, he's not going to be the guy that makes a difference in this series, but if they can make Mark Gasol run the floor a little bit more defensively than Daniel Tice would, I think we could see Robert Williams see a lot more time in this series. Maybe. I mean, that, like you said, that's somebody that Brad Stevens in this series, or the series prior, rather has been hesitant to go to, and he didn't play a ton in the regular season, just about 13 minutes per game. I, I, I could see that being a course of action. But, uh, you know, Nick talked about turning bench players, role players, below average players into stars or uh, uh, serviceable players, role players is, is what I should say instead. Uh, and that's something that Brad Stevens has done so well in the past. But the bench that they ran out in those last two games against the Sixers, I mean, Wanamaker was getting maybe 20 minutes and his cancer. 
But outside of that, uh, there just was not anybody that he, he, he trusted enough to give him double-digit minutes. And that's something that I think is going to have to change in the series against the Raptors. Could that person be Robert Williams? Maybe, like you said, he's got tremendous amount of athleticism. You know, uh, he's 22 years old. Uh, and maybe could cause Gasol problems. It'd be interesting to see if the Raptors countered that with playing Ibaka as a small ball five. Like you said, these are the moves that could potentially be made in a chess match between two of the best coaches in the NBA. Uh, but it is a little bit concerning to me that the Celtics, they're really only going seven to eight deep in these last two games against the Sixers, and that was against the not very deep Sixers team that still put up a pretty decent fight. You replace that with probably the second best team in terms of depth behind the Clippers and the Toronto Raptors and that becomes a serious problem the the depth of the Celtics is something we've talked about before and it's something we've talked about with a lot of these Eastern Conference teams it just seems like the the some of the Western Conference teams have considerably more depth than the, the teams at the top of the East do but even you go further down in the Eastern Conference playoffs a team that is going to look like it, well it doesn't look like they probably are going to match up with the Milwaukee Bucks is the Miami Heat. Uh, they pull off the sweep against the Indiana Pacers. The, we talked uh, previously about how the Pacers, uh, just in terms of uh, ability, in terms of matchups, looked uh, overmatched coming into this series. And that's exactly what happened. The Miami Heat, I mean, they use that depth. They get double-digit scores from all over the place. And, and they're just able to, to swarm the Pacers in this series. And I thought, like you said, Luke, Kendrick Perkins uh, seems to think that this is the team that could knock off the Milwaukee Bucks. And I think if they play like they did against Indiana, they get the kind of scoring depth that they did against Indiana. That's certainly a possibility. Hello? Do you guys hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was muted and started to go on a rant. Okay. Do you want me to just start? Yeah, I can cut it out in post. Sorry about that. All right, here we go. Uh, absolutely. It's a, it's a polar opposite, Daniel, from that Celtics team that was only running out seven different players at double-digit minutes. Uh, nine players played 14 minutes or more in their closeout game against the Pacers. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of depth here, a tremendous amount of shooting prowess. It's a well-put-together team, but we don't need to reiterate it because we talk about it every episode. I hesitate to make this take again because I've been wrong up until this point in the series with the Clippers and the Mavericks. Uh, but it, it kind of reminds me of that conversation that we had before that series started, which when you match up against the Bucks, you wonder who's going to get stops on this team. You know, Jimmy Butler plays the three, so they can play a, basically a three-guard lineup with him kind of being that forward hybrid. They've been starting Jay Crowder. Iguodala is a guy who can come off the bench. You know, they're going to have to come up with an answer for a, a very big two-guard in Chris Middleton, and they're going to have to come up with an answer to somebody that's going to try to hang on to Giannis. Uh, and we talked about athletic bigs uh, causing Marcus All problems, and we said that that's been a problem Brooke Lopez has had all season. Well, introduce yourself, Bam Adebayo. And even Kelly Olenek, for that matter, is a big that can get you out of the paint. Uh, there are things, there are advantages that I think the Heat definitely have. They've got depth, they've got better shooting, uh, and, and I would argue maybe guard play. But then you also have to wonder what Miami's going to do in this series to combat the length of Middleton and, and, and to combat the length of Giannis. They might not need to if it's a shootout, uh, but it becomes a really, really interesting series that's set forth for us here in round two. You mentioned Bam Adebayo, and he's a guy that I, I love in the league, and I love his role with the Miami Heat. He was not 
particularly efficient in game four, but without Jimmy Butler scoring or really playing much in a game that was mostly in hand for the Heat, Bam Adebayo, he went six of 16 from the floor, but he scores 14 points, pulls down 19 rebounds, and dishes out six assists. Uh, For a team, uh, like you guys said, that struggles with athletic bigs, with Brooke Lopez having to play in there, they spent a first-round pick on D.J. Wilson out of Michigan, and he's not really panned out as that athletic five they were hoping to get. Uh, They've moved on from Thon Maker. Uh, This is a matchup that I could see causing some problems, not necessarily with Bam Adebayo as a primary scorer, but somebody that that can score in transition and, and can facilitate out of that high post and find some shooters if they are forced to collapse on him if Brooke Lopez struggles to handle him around the perimeter. Yeah, Daniel, I mean, oh, you can go, Luke. Go ahead, Luke. Go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. Okay, well, just talking about this this uh, matchup as a whole, I mean, I really don't see this series going past five games, personally. I And this is coming from the same, pers- from the same person I thought uh, the Mavericks would take the Clippers to six games. And I think the difference between these two matchups is the fact that the Mavericks have a perennial superstar on their team and a fantastic score at the five in Porzingis. Whereas I think that he kind of struggled to find that guy. You could say Duncan Robinson, but he struggled the last couple of games in, against Indiana and Jimmy Butler, who's also struggled as well, especially in the last game, Jimmy Butler had six points, Duncan Robinson had five points. They can't get the stops and they don't have that superstar to really carry them late on in games, in my opinion. And that's why Maybe they'll seal a game against Milwaukee, but I think this is the series where the Bucks make that statement that I was talking about before. And, of course, to add to that, Jimmy Butler, he only played 23 minutes, like you said, Daniel. He was dealing with some, uh, some problems in his left shoulder, if I'm correct. They kept cutting over to him at the bench, and he had gotten it taped up. I do want to ask this, though. It's a little bit of a weird question. I know we don't have to spend that much time on it. Do you think, either one of you, that this is the series where – the Bucks get a little bit freaky, and it they go back to something that they tried a couple of years ago, which was Giannis spending significant minutes at the five. Have to do it, especially against Bam Adebayo, who almost plays more like a like a combo forward, like a three and a half, if you will. Do you see this being a situation where if if Lopez is getting run off the floor, he can't go back and forth and transition, which is what Miami's probably going to try to do is turn this into a track meet and just jack up as many threes in transition as they can, would that prompt the decision to give Giannis some minutes at the five uh, so uh, uh, that Bucks team can try to combat that? I think that fits perfectly in Milwaukee's plans to try Giannis at the five, being the fact that Giannis has continuously proven that he can't get it done on the perimeter and the fact that he's an elite defender no matter what position they're guarding. Someone like Giannis on Adebayo can really choke him out of this lineup personally and is a, is a rash decision that just might work for uh, the Bucks in that situation. Yeah, I think it's something they can probably afford to do because you can take uh, Chris Middleton – and slide him over onto Jimmy Butler. And in terms of defensive ability, he's a different kind of defender, but you're probably going to get similar production uh, matched up against Jimmy Butler, which is really where uh, you're going to need to see that uh, for the Bucks in, in this series because I think he's going to be the one that, that makes things go for the Miami Heat as this goes along because they do have so few – they have so many guys like Duncan Robinson, like Kelly Olenek, that that pack a punch offensively, but they don't really create their own shot. If they can match Giannis up with Bam Adebayo and and he can stay out of foul trouble, that would be a big thing 
for me is if he does get taken into the post by Bam Adebayo, that he he doesn't find himself in foul trouble. And if Chris Middleton can handle Jimmy Butler, I think that could be a game changer as this series goes on. And I think it could shorten it, make it a little bit of an easier finish for the Bucks. I don't know your thoughts on that, Luke. Yeah, I, I think so. That's actually something I really hadn't considered. And I'm not saying that the Bucks should come out game one with Giannis at the five. I'm just saying that's something that they could afford to go to 15, 20 minutes a game. But that's that would be the thought process behind it. Bam, Bam Adebayo would immediately try to take him into the rim as a traditional big. He plays very well around the rim, try to get him into foul trouble and make it a series. You know, Nick brought up a great point. You know, he doesn't expect the series to go very far. So that might be in a position where Milwaukee's just so much better that that's not something they necessarily need to do. Uh, with the length that this team has on the perimeter, if Giannis doesn't play the five with him and Middleton, that's very tough to shoot over. So this could be dispatched in five games anyways, and it doesn't matter. Just, you know, that's just something I wanted to bring up uh, kind of out of the back pocket because, you know, Brick Lopez getting up there in years as, as Milwaukee turns the page and wants to keep Giannis there in the long term. That's always something I've kind of thought in the back of my mind is him at the five because he's big enough to do it. And like you said, he's defensively capable enough to do it. But if it were to come that to that in the series, I think it's something that could be effective. I would agree with you there. I think that is – it shouldn't be plan A. It should almost be a, a break glass in case of an emergency option. If this series starts to turn away from them, I would say in the first two games, that, that could be a direction that we could see – Mike Budenholzer go with this this Bucks team but I still think they're in a good position matched up with Miami I'm not sure I would see them having any kind of issues until they would run into Toronto or Boston potentially in the in the Eastern Conference Finals but that that really does it for for what we're looking to talk about in the East if we move out west we see kind of a similar situation with their 1-8 matchup as what we saw in the East with the the Bucks and the Magic we said multiple times that the Portland Trailblazers of any of the teams that could have got this Western Conference eight seed, it looked like they had the best chance to push the Los Angeles Lakers. It looked like that was backed up in game one, but then the Lakers, the last couple of games, they've won three in a row, and especially Monday night in game four, just put a hurting on the Portland Trailblazers. There was no point where that game was competitive. And guys, either one of you, I'll put this out to you, the Los Angeles Lakers, the way they've looked the last couple games, I know that uh, Damian Lillard's dealt with some injuries, but this Lakers team looks a as dangerous as we've seen them all year. I know we, we talked about they've kind of fell into that well at one point where they just, they just didn't look like a title contender. I'm not ready to put them back in that stratosphere quite yet, but they look like they're taking a, taking a step forward at the right time. I mean, I think the Lakers are still the favorites. I think that goes by now. I mean, I get the Trailblazers. This is a genuine case of a team that just ran out of gas and is ultimately taking on a team that is much better than them. But um, this, was a, this was a very annoying narrative for me as someone that has been a Lakers believer, said they were going to be the number one seed back in October, said they were going to win the NBA Finals. I mean, I, this is it's getting kind of annoying, frankly, because you look at the Blazers, they come in, they have an incredible game one. And then the narratives begin about how the Lakers aren't challenging for the title anymore. All these things happen because they jump to conclusions after one game. We see the Lakers absolutely dominate the Blazers in these last couple of games. Anthony Davis coming back into form. LeBron James finally implementing his scoring a lot more. He's getting utilized. His usage percentage is probably going up as well. 
all around the role players as well has probably been the biggest factor in the Lakers in terms of getting it done. KCP getting 12 points in the last game, Danny Green getting 14 points. It's been the role players that has led the Lakers to this position. It's a matter of if they can keep it up, and I think 100% yes uh, for that answer. Uh, And what's so imperative – I'm sorry, go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to say same kind of prompt to you, I guess. What was imperative to me about that game yesterday was that only one of their starters had to play over 25 minutes, and that was LeBron who got 28. Anthony Davis played 18 minutes in this game. So it's nice to kind of flick off the bug that was the Trailblazers and kind of move on and get your guys rested, not force LeBron to turn into playoff LeBron in the first round. And what was so great about the game on top of that yesterday was all the role players off the bench that got so many minutes it was almost like an audition, if you will, to say, you know, we know what our starting five is. We know what our top six, seven players are to the Dwight Howards, the Caruso's, the Markeith Morris's out there. Who's going to step up when we need big minutes in our next round matchup, whether that be against the Rockets and the Thunder, which uh, is already looking to be like it's going to be more of a test than the Trailblazers were in game one. Nick's absolutely right. I think we just jumped the gun a little bit too early on the, uh, on LeBron, but when you have a player like LeBron, anytime something goes remotely wrong for him, everyone's going to jump all over it. But that was exactly the kind of one that the Lakers needed. They dominated early. They got their starters out early. They got 20-plus minutes to three different people off the bench, 18 to Morris, 17 to Smith, 14 to Waiters, to give them the opportunity to see what they had. So when it's time to restrict their minutes in the next round, whether it be, again, against Houston or Oklahoma City, they know who they have. Uh, and it's it's refreshing for those people like Nick who expected the Lakers to dominate this year, contend for an NBA title, for them to handle their business against the Trailblazers in round one. Yeah, and I would have to say it was probably hyperbole of me earlier to say uh, that I'm not putting the Lakers in title contention. I would say I'm not putting them as far and away my number one team to win the NBA championship. I think they've got a very good chance to come out of the Western Conference. And once you get to the NBA Finals, I think they've got a great chance to compete there as well. And Luke, you brought up a really interesting point with this team, and that's the guys that are contributing off the bench. We've talked all all year, it seems like, since this NBA season started, who knows how long ago, that this Lakers team, that their depth was going to be what came to came back to bite them. But like you said, they went really deep into the bench. They have several guys break into double-digit minutes. Kuzma and Howard both break 20 as well as Alex Caruso. Uh, Like you said, this is kind of uh, an opportunity for these guys to figure out who's going to contribute off the bench, who can can play a role as they go deeper into the playoffs. And it seemed like it was more of a precautionary issue in a blowout that Anthony Davis only played eight minutes uh, with back spasms. But it, it seemed like this team is starting to figure out uh, who can handle themselves off the bench a little bit more if they are put into a position where a guy like Anthony Davis is going to miss a little bit of time. I mean, look at the guys that are coming off this bench. Dwight Howard's a, a few years removed, a good few many years removed from being uh, one of the most dominant centers in the NBA. He's a very shrewd player around the rim. Kyle Kuzma, anybody with a basketball brain, knows the kind of talent he possesses as a guy that can create his own shot off the dribble. He's a very inefficient player. I've talked about that a lot, but if he could turn it on, that would be key. Alex Caruso is as athletic as any guard in the, or any backup guard left in the Western Conference. Markeith Morris a couple of years ago was a guy that was given the Wizards 16 and 8, 
and some really meaningful buckets in the playoffs and that crazy series they had against the Celtics. J.R. Smith's had moments. Waiters had moments. I mean, there's a role here for one of these guys to step up and become that key piece off the bench that is the final piece of the puzzle for the Lakers to storm through the Western Conference. And it's nice to see that in Game 4, they had that opportunity to addition, and I'm sure the same will be the case in Game 5. Yeah, I would think so, as well as the Lakers try to close this out. I want to talk a little bit more about Markeith Morris. Obviously, this is a team that has had struggles at the guard position. They've had a hard time finding guards off the bench to go with KCP and Danny Green. Alex Caruso has been in that role most of the year. J.R. Smith and Dion Waiters were late additions to this roster. But the more I think about Markeith Morris, the, think I, the more I think he can be a valuable piece as a rebounder and a floor spacer. Obviously, he didn't show it a ton in game four against Portland, but he goes two for five from the field in 18 minutes, five points, one for four from behind the arc. But that's that's the type of player he can be. He can hit a couple three-pointers for you. I think he's a better rebounder than he showed in that game with just one. But a guy at 6'9 that can space the floor, uh, even with LeBron handling the ball most of the time, you're going to need floor spacers around him. I think Markeith Morris can take a step forward and be a key bench piece. Yeah. I disagree I, I, with, oh, go ahead, Luke. Well, uh, you can, you can dis, uh, disagree with what I'm about to say, Nick. But like I said, a couple of years ago, that, that Wizards team that's off the starting offense was so great because their bench scoring was so terrible. Markeith Morris was a player that was consistently getting them 16-7. and seven. He shot 33% from three in the regular season for the Lakers, which was a big weakness that Nick and I went back and forth on a lot. He shoots very well from the free throw line. He's a good rebounder, like you said, Daniel, averaging over three per game in just 14 minutes of play. I think the days are behind him of his ability to play the three. He did that occasionally in Washington, but he's another veteran who can shoot well. I think can protect the rim well enough. I, I mean, he's not he's not going to give you you know consistently fifteen and eight like he did in Washington, but the experience that he brings off the bench, his ability to space the floor on a team that doesn't have a ton of that, is somebody that could be crucial uh, in coming series for the Lakers. I'm going to have to disagree with you guys just because, I mean, you have to understand where he's at in his career. As you mentioned, Luke, he's, he's not good enough to play the three at the moment. He's going to, he's strictly, he's only 30. I know, but he's strictly at the four at this time. I, I don't, I really don't see him getting minutes as the three for the Lakers right now, but, and then you look at where they have in that position, you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, obviously in the front court, and then you have Kyle Kuzma coming off the bench. I think those are the guys that are really going to dominate the minutes at that position. Markeith will get probably five to 10 minutes a game. Meaningful if you want to go that route. But um, I haven't been impressed with him since he's been on the Lakers personally. I think um, Kuzma, while he's incredibly inconsistent, when he has those times when he's hot, I mean, you, have to leave, you just have to leave him on the floor when, it, when he's having one of those games. When I look at the depth that the Lakers have at that position with LeBron and Anthony Davis, they're going to get a lot more minutes in these playoffs when the games get closer, along with Kuzma coming off the bench as well for them. I just don't see Markeith Morris in the mix. Well, I'd have to disagree with that because you think about the situation. LeBron's going to have the ball in his hands. He's not – I mean, he, he's their point forward. Kuzma's going to get more playing time at the three, and there's going to be situations where Anthony Davis slides down to the five in a position where JaVale McGee just isn't giving them the production that they need. And and the point we're trying to make, Nick, is I, beggars can't be choosers at this point. I grip Markeith Morris is not the bench piece that you want to have if you're contending for a title. But we're talking about a Lakers team that's getting consistent production from three to four people right now. 
And, and, and we're looking at a veteran here who's only 30. I misspoke. I honestly thought he was older than that. He's only 30 years old. And the minutes he could give them at the four could be – I don't want to derail this podcast and argue about Marquise <laughs> Morris for 15 minutes because who the heck cares. But uh, that would be somebody I could uh, see take a step. You know, he's a little bit more versatile than what Dwight Howard brings. He's a little bit more consistent of a shooter than Kyle Kuzma could be uh, off the bench of a Lakers team that probably needs that kind of shooter uh, that can play, you know, the, the power forward position. Yeah, I think that's that's the key. Not necessarily the key, but somebody needs to step up off the bench for this Lakers team, at least provide a little bit of shooting. And I think Markeith Morris can do that. But as we move on to the other team in Los Angeles, not in Los Angeles right now, obviously, as everybody's in Orlando, but the L.A. Clippers, this is one of two really competitive Western Conference series. We're going to talk about them and the the Dallas Mavericks. We talked so much about how the Mavericks struggled to defend, and they've not really been great on the defensive end against the Clippers in this series, but then they've been able to score at a rate to keep up with them. Obviously, Luka Doncic with that spectacular performance in Game 4, including a game winner doing it all really on one healthy ankle. Kristaps uh, uh, Porzingis uh, was out, ruled out for game four. He's been ruled out for game five, which, of course, that game will be over by the time this show uh, hits the airwaves. But uh, we're, we're still recording this ahead of time. So Kristaps Porzingis out for game five. This is, in my eyes, one of the dis- obviously going to be one of the most deciding factors of this series, how this fifth game goes. And, guys, I just want to get your predictions on game five without Kristaps Porzingis, with the Mavericks having so much momentum coming off of that game winner from Luka Doncic. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought Nick was going to take that one. All right, I'll go. Oh, um, yeah, just I'll just game five. Up. Great chemistry, guys. Well, I got to be honest, this is a series I've been wrong about up until this point. Uh, Luka Doncic is just that good of a player that he can change a series by himself. And the production that they're getting out of, you know, Seth Curry, Trey Burke drops 25 in 37 minutes, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, But I I, I hate to say it, I'm still leaning Clippers. It wouldn't surprise me if they win the next two games. Uh, I'm not one of those people that thinks that Doc Rivers is such an overrated coach but his mismanagement of these games down the stretch have just been abysmal. I mean, I understand switching off of ball screens and whatever. They bring in Reggie Jackson, and Reggie Jackson has to match up with Luka Doncic off of the screen. I get that before people jump down my ca- or jump down my throat. The last several possessions of that game, <laughs> uh, the last several possessions of that game, and as a result of that, I, this is a team that misses Pat Bev. I get that, but – I know Paul George is in his feelings right now or whatever, uh, Kawhi Leonard as well. They're still two of the most elite on-ball defenders in the NBA, and you can't put them in a situation where one of them is guarding Luka Doncic, the only player on the floor that was going to be shooting that ball in that situation, and they can't get a stop. It's unbelievably remarkable. They brought in Landry Shaman, and the broadcast had the audacity to say, oh, great move by Doc Rivers here to bring an absolute world-beater defensive player off the bench in <laughs> Landry Shaman. It, it, it drives me crazy. Uh, they're one great coaching decision away from being up 3-1 in this series and this not even mattering as a discussion. I'm sure I'm going to be wrong, and Doncic is going to put up 50 tonight, and the Mavericks are going to win this series. But if you want my prediction, Daniel, I think the Clippers figure it out. It's hard to believe that Paul George is going to score in single digits for two or three more games. He's got to break three at, at some point. He's just too good of a player, and I would not be shocked if the Clippers win the next two games. 
I'm going to double down on your prediction, Luke, and I'm going to say that the Mavericks don't win another game in this series. I think the Clippers win this one in six, and I think Paul. I think the main catalyst of this is Paul George really turning a leaf, along with all, along with other key players like Montrez Harrell, who was horrific in that last game, really stepping up to the plate as well, especially with Porzingis out. The main the main storyline in this entire series has been Paul George and how poor he's been. If you look at his stats, he had nine points and eight rebounds in 45 minutes in that overtime loss to the Mavericks. That's what I average at Marilla Park. That shouldn't be what Paul George is averaging in an NBA game. That It just can't happen. And I think he's too good for that. I think this is this game six, without Porzingis especially, is going to be a game where the Clippers really make a statement. Because we have to remember, before the series started, they might have been – they were the favorites for a lot of people. You know, I had the Lakers. Luke had the um, the Rockets. But – the Clippers were probably the favorite for the general public based on how they were able to match up against L.A. and just how they've been throughout the regular season. I didn't forget that. I still think uh, this is still an incredibly talented team that is just waiting for Paul George to erupt in this series. And I think for these next two games, we might see that. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Nick. Paul George is the catalyst for the rest of this series. If he gets it turned around, I think the Clippers – win this one like you said in the next two games and the Mavericks don't get another chance to try to 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 put themselves in a position to move on and win this in an upset but we're still talking about a team that needed 36 points off the bench from Lou Williams for that game to even have a chance to go into overtime so the Dallas Mavericks are in a position where if Paul George doesn't get it turned around they've got a great chance to win this series but they've been so reliant on guys that you can't rely on. I mean, Trey Burke, we, we said it watching this, this game for the other night, has made himself a lot of money in the bubble, but you can't rely on him to score 25 points, play 37 minutes, and shoot 10 for 14 from the field. That's, that's just not sustainable. So I'm going to agree with you guys. I think Paul George is going to bust out of this slump. I think he's going to put them in a position to win game five. And I think that sets them up with momentum for game six, personally. Well, can I just ask really quickly, uh, and we're more NHL fans than Nick is, Daniel, so we kind of understand what it's like more so to walk away from a star in the playoffs. What do you think happens in this situation? It's game five. Paul George has played basically all but five minutes of the first half, and he's 0 of 6 from the, on the, from the field, and he's got three points. Do you stick with Paul George? I mean, it's freaking Paul George. I get that. Do you stick with him there, or do you think that Doc Rivers would make – a grown man decision and limit his minutes in the second half, or he's terrible in game five, the Mavericks win game five. What do you do for game six? Because like Nick said, it's remarkable how poor he's been playing. And it's, we're not talking about two games. We're talking about an entire series. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and this is a Clippers team that has the depth to probably be able to mitigate Paul George, at least spending some more time on the bench. Uh, we've talked about uh, how important their depth is to them for for most of this series and honestly most of this season. Uh, but like I said, Lou Williams, uh, really impressive off the bench with 36, did a great job, honestly, to keep them in that game. And, and I think we can see him take on an increased role. Obviously, that game went into overtime. So he played just about everybody that played legitimate rotation minutes in that game, saw an uptick in minutes. But he went from 26 minutes in game three to 34 in game four. I think we could see – him and Montrez Harrell, who did not play a ton down the stretch of game four, take on bigger roles, figure out something just to where Paul George, if he does struggle early in, in game five, they have somebody else on the court that is producing that are able to pull something off there. 
but uh, guys, I, I still see the Clippers winning this series. I see Paul George busting out of the slump, but it's, it's definitely an interesting thing to think about, Luke. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, probably going to be the most watched game of the playoffs up until this point. I understand the NBA TV ratings haven't been great. Uh, Luka Doncic is must-see TV. You know, we're having a conversation before the air. We've got plans this afternoon, some other uh, radio duties, if you will. But we're all going to hurry around a TV console tonight to watch Game 5. Uh, you know, as writers, as analysts, as whatever you want to call us, you know, the smart money's on the Clippers to win the next two games of the series. But I would be I, – I, I think all of us in our guilty pleasures kind of want to see Luka Doncic just go off with another 40-point triple-double and, and make this one of the most impressive – uh, NBA playoff performances ever, period, not just for a player that young. Yeah, that's that's uh, a huge thing for me as well. Uh, Luka Doncic is, is proving to be one of the very best players in the NBA, regardless of age, regardless of whatever you want to say. He's a top five player in the league for my money right now, maybe even higher than that. Uh, but to, to kind of segue into a series that's seeing somebody else, another young player, do something very similar – the Utah Jazz uh, up three to one now on on the Denver Nuggets, which I don't think just about anybody saw coming. And a large part of that's been Donovan Mitchell game four uh, this past Sunday. They win that one by two. He duels with uh, with Jamal Murray throughout that one. He goes for 51 points, seven assists, four rebounds, uh, shoots 15 of 27 from the field, makes four three-pointers, goes 17 of 18 at the free throw line. Uh, I saw a headline that said Donovan Mitchell is turning into a superstar uh, before our eyes. And while I'm not sure superstar is the right word for it, when you're looking at a guy that's got two 50-point games uh, in four playoff games this season, uh, that's that's getting pretty close to that. I don't know what you would think about that, Nick. Yeah, I mean, you look at Donovan Mitchell. I mean, this is a guy that is, that is single-handedly putting an NBA team on its back and has led this team to a 3-1 lead. I mean, it's just shocking. I mean, I, I don't really have much else to say about it. It's, I mean, that last game, I don't know. Obviously, you guys watched it. It was one of the best battles, like individual battles between Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray that I think I've seen in a very, very long time. But to stick with the Jazz, I mean, they're not getting a lot of production elsewhere, aren't they? I mean, in the last game, Mike Conley got 26 and Jordan Clarkson got 24, but you can't rely on that. You know what I mean? For that reason, I still think the Nuggets still might take this series, but – I mean, it's been Donovan Mitchell that's carried them. Yeah, it's it's Donovan. Know, and, Go ahead. Uh, Daniel, superstar is exactly the right word. I mean, superstar is what we call Damian Lillard when he had these kind of performances in the bubble. So superstars should be the word that should be applied to Donovan Mitchell in this series, who is the only reason that this series is 3-1 jazz. You take him out of the equation, this is a four-game sweep. It's not even close. No, I'm totally with you on that. Uh, this I love this Nuggets team coming into this, especially getting Jamal Murray back. They were able to battle through game one and pull the win out there. But it's just not been what we were expecting to see out of this team. I mean, uh, obviously, Bull Bull coming back was overblown, but he's getting DNP coach decision throughout this series. Their bench did not produce at all in game four, where they literally lost by two points. And Michael Porter Jr. has been moved to the bench, and he only scored nine points in that one. They get four points from the rest of the bench. This is a Nuggets team that, honestly, what they're doing, moving guys around in the lineup, having to get 50 points from Jamal Murray to be competitive in game four, this team is 
honestly losing themselves at the worst possible time to lose a team's identity. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, you look at the box score and the minutes played from, from game four in this series, and it's almost exactly like the conversation we just had about the Boston Celtics. Obviously, they didn't have a player go off for 50 points like Jamal Murray did, but they're not getting any production off of their bench. The difference between them and Boston is they've got some role players that at times throughout this season and in the NBA bubble can just absolutely torture team. Michael Porter was a special player. Mason Plumlee is a guy that can give you 10 and 10. I always love Troy Daniels, but we won't talk about him. Jeremy Grant is a player that could, out of nowhere, just go out and drop a 20-piece on somebody. Paul Millsap as well. And we haven't seen that at all in a, in a four-game series. And in a four-game sample size, you'd think that we'd see that once or twice from one of these role players to step up. But Jamal Murray returns from injury and has to put the entire Nuggets organization on his back. You know, Jokic moving back to the five has kind of hindered his playmaking abilities. He's, he's down to just averaging six or seven assists per game. So you're going to have to see them try to put the ball more into his hands in the high post to try to generate more valuable, high-quality touches for him. That would be the key. But a 3-1 to one deficit against a player as hot as Donovan Mitchell is, is insurmountable, I think, no matter how good this Nuggets team is. Yeah, this is There's going to have to be something change, whether it's Donovan Mitchell severely tails off down the stretch of this series. That, that's beside the point. The Denver Nuggets are going to have to do something differently if they want to have any chance in this series. Obviously, they're already down 3-1. But you look at the game three box score. Obviously, they got blown out in that game. And you saw guys coming off the bench that were getting a lot more minutes than they normally would. But we're talking about a team that in a playoff game saw Keita Bates-Diop, who couldn't get minutes in Minnesota this year, getting double-digit minutes in game three of a Western Conference first-round playoff. There's something wrong with that, whether it's because they're getting blown out or because they're just looking for a spark from anybody. Uh, This is a team that I loved coming into the playoffs. I love Jamal Murray. Obviously, like you said, Jokic's passing ability has been nerfed a little bit uh, by playing him more as a traditional five-man. But this is a team that, in terms of talent, is head and shoulders above the Utah Jazz, and, and they're just not performing up to it. And then you factor in a superstar performance from Donovan Mitchell, and it's just an awful, awful a mix of ingredients for the Denver Nuggets in this playoff series. And, and this really sidelines what this organization was doing in terms of progress. I mean, another thing we're not talking about, unfortunately, this Nuggets team year in, year out, has one of the best records at home. So going to the bubble is something that I'm sure greatly affects this team. Uh, but there's so much talent, so much depth. You know, I always talk about Malik Beasley. Every time they come up, they give him away for free. You know, they had Jordan McRae from the Wizards. They move him on because that's how much depth they had. And now all of a sudden it completely disappears. This is a team that was getting better and better and better with their momentum every single season and was rising to be one of those superstar teams with the stars that they had in Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic and just this bevy of depth players around them. I'm not saying we're sounding the alarm for the Nuggets. Uh, Nick might conclude this conversation by saying he thinks they're going to rattle off three games in a row and win this series, which I guess is still a possibility. I wouldn't say so. But it's incredibly alarming uh, as a Nugget fan for them not to be able to dispatch a Jazz team that, like you said, Daniel, in terms of team talent, just can't hold a candle to them. Oh, I, th- I, I, no, I got nothing else to say after that. <laughs> okay, okay, never mind. Never mind. Uh, so we move on from that one, the, kind of the shocker series of the Western Conference playoffs, and we move to the series that is one of the other most competitive ones. It's the 4-5 series, the, the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder, excuse me, 
have been going at it. Uh, Russell Westbrook obviously has missed the first four games of this series with a quad strain. He's still up in the air for game five as far as we know at this point. But, Luke, this is a series that you and I talked about as probably being the most competitive in any of the, any of the NBA playoffs this year. And the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Houston Rockets, it's been fireworks offensively. And it's just been some of the most exciting basketball we've seen. Obviously, the Rockets take the first two games that look like they're putting themselves in a really great position to, to move on even without having to use Russell Westbrook. But then the Thunder come in in the last two games. They come from behind in both and look really good in doing it. Obviously, you don't want to see your team having to make comebacks in the playoffs, but they've been able to do it, and they've got momentum going into game five. Yeah, every broadcast you see when it comes down to crunch time talks about how efficient Oklahoma City was in the regular season. Uh, and for a player that picked the Rockets to go all the way to the NBA Finals, or player, I say, this is myself, uh, who has picked the Rockets to go to the NBA Finals, I was thrilled with the way the series started. You win game one without Russell Westbrook. You win game two without James Harden playing particularly well. I think game three is going to be such an important game when we come back and look at this series. It took overtime for the Thunder to get the win and James Harden fouling out, which would have made a huge difference before they blew him out in overtime, if I'm correct. Uh, but then they come back and in, in, in regulation beat uh, this Rockets team with James Harden in game four to tie up the series. Lugans Dort uh, amongst analytics circles has become a little bit of a darling for what he can do defensively. Uh, really helps Anthony Edwards stock moving up in the draft because they're uh, they're pretty similar players, although obviously Edwards is a lot more talented. And Jenna Schroeder, of course, getting 30 minutes or 30 points off the bench doesn't hurt either. Uh, Chris Paul, I hate him to death. I really do. Uh, but man, oh man, he's such a special player and, and what he can do in an organization. Shea Gilgis-Alexander pulls down 12 rebounds in this game. I'm still going to stick with the Rockets prediction. But the storyline, of course, we all need to address is, is what's where in the world is Russell Westbrook? I know he's dealing with the injury, but you, you thought this was a series that the Rockets could put away early and not have to rush him back. But here we sit at 2-2. It's imperative for him to play in game five, and you have to wonder what kind of a difference maker he would be coming back from injury and if that changes the series so drastically that the Rockets run away with the next two games or not. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Russell Westbrook coming back. Where where is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? Uh, what is the opportunity for that to happen, guys? We're we're just about out of time. We've just about used up our hour on U ninety two. So I'm going to hold off on commenting on this series. Obviously, we'd love to talk about it more, and we can move kind of our our trade discussion into the draft segment as well on the podcast. But Nick, just a couple minutes here quickly. Your thoughts on this game or this series? Excuse me, moving into game five. It's still in the Rockets' hands, but there's a big where is Wessel Westbrook sign at the front of every uh, <laughs> front of every postage stamp if you can find one because that's been the key for why the Thunder have come back. Chris Paul, um, you mentioned you hate him, Luke. I think he might be the smartest player in NBA history with just the Probably. things that he do. With the things that he does on the court, I mean – you don't see it at first during the game, but you look at people recapping what he does. He is the smartest player probably in NBA history. I can't think of someone smarter. He's been the main catalyst. Um, the Rockets, obviously, they don't really have a bench. They haven't really been playing with a bench. We saw that in the last game. They're desperate for Westbrook to come back, and I think that's the storyline. Yeah, that's, that's it for me. Uh, Russell Westbrook is the key for this series because uh, Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis-Alexander in the backcourt has been uh, on another level for for the, the Oklahoma City Thunder, particularly in these last two games. 
but we're going to move it over to the podcast version. We're running out of time here on the radio. So I will end this real quick. Uh, thank you for listening to Beyond the Arc. You're listening to U92, the Moose. Well, guys, we we kind of sped through the end of the Western Conference playoffs there, but now we're into the into the podcast exclusive segment. And that, of course, means we're going to loosen it up a little bit. And we do have breaking news as the podcast goes on. Uh, McDonald's, the proverbial uh, king of fast food, regardless of what you think about the quality of McDonald's food. The SEC of, of uh, fast food. Exactly. In terms of, in terms of raw production, the king of, of fast food in the United States. Introducing spicy chicken McNuggets. Uh, beginning it, it it appears next month at, at your local mcdonald's store what are, what are we thinking gentlemen you know it reminds me of it reminds me of uh ever since lebron became the king of the nba there's always been another trying to basically break it down i remember way back when when um they were with the heat paul george was that player paul george was going to be the player and then it was derrick rose and now we enter the new era. It was going to be the Warriors, right? It was going to be Curry. Um, and then it was going to be Kevin Durant. And then it was going to be Kawhi. But no matter what all of these players do, the king still has his throne. And I think um, that's the perfect uh, metaphor that represents McDonald's with this move. <laughs> Luke, your thoughts to follow up. I-, I can't wax poetic on McDonald's like Nick just did there. Hey, you know, not everyone. I'll throw a wrench into the works and say that I think that the, the, the Wendy's Spicy Nuggets, which broke the internet in the middle of the NBA playoffs last year, if I recall, you know, that they're teetering on overrated, if we're being just honest. I mean, they're cap. Let's, 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 let's say how it is, man. The, the Wendy's re- – the, the regular Nuggets, far and wide, blow them out of the water. I'll McDonald's, McDonald's you know. Nuggets are the best Nuggets. It's like LeBron Ooh, adding – I don't – I don't know. Okay, let's let's see. Let's ha- okay, maybe Chick Fil A then. Okay. Yeah, Chick Fil A, Chick Fil A. Okay, Chick-fil-A. okay, but um, you know, n- never mind. I was gonna say something. McDonald's nuggets were <laughs> very good. You add some spiciness into there, and we're really we're talking like line, We're talking Popeye chicken sandwich type of hype here. Oh, yeah, do you think they're gonna be around a lot? The that is a new. I, level. They might, bro. If they're good, I'm gonna get that twenty piece with the barbecue sauce. Every day of the week, twice on Sundays. I live five minutes away. I work across. Hey, the street I, from I, I'll tell you what. Why don't we get back together? Uh, we'll be in person, do this podcast, and for the bonus pod, uh, we can do or the bonus podcast section. We'll do a live on the air spicy nugget review. Let's that sounds it. amazing. Let's Maybe not so much an ASMR. Nobody wants to hear Nick chew on McNuggets uh, <laughs> on Spotify. But... I don't know. Your auntie might disagree. <laughs> oh, oh <my> goodness! <laughs> from the top, I can't. I can't come back from that one. But we'll. we'll, we'll... <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll try to air that when they come out. Yeah, let's let's do it. But uh, honestly, let's let's move on a little bit. We've already had to push this push this segment from the from the main episode onto the podcast exclusive. But let's we're gonna do a little bit of NBA trade center talk, and that's because there's been rumors swirling around the Philadelphia 76ers. They fire Brett Brown as their head coach. That kind of seems like the first step to them. Uh, reshaping things a little bit. Elton Brand keeps his job as the head of the front office, but things are obviously changing a little bit. We've heard the Cavaliers are gearing up to throw a package at the uh, Philadelphia 76ers for, for Ben Simmons in return. Uh, guys, we obviously uh, have a, a close uh, personal coworker and friend 
in Ethan Collins, who is a, a, a Cleveland Cavaliers fan. We've had discussions with him about this before. We've kind of come up with our own collective trade package for Ben Simmons. Luke, I'll start with you on this one. What what are the Cleveland Cavaliers have to to possibly make a match to send Ben Simmons to Cleveland? You know that's a that's a that's a very good question, Daniel. Uh, when you look at this roster and the talent or lack thereof, uh, Cleveland, I, in my opinion, whiffing on back-to-back first-round picks with Colin Sexton, Darius Garland. One of those two would have to be involved. Chetty Osmond's another name that I threw out there. I, I, I think we're talking about something along the lines because I think Sexton would play a lot better with Simmons than Garland would. Uh, a package of Darius Garland uh, to go along with Chetty Osmond maybe a little Larry Nance in there, and then their pick, which is, what, fifth overall? Um, That would be enough to do it, I think. We had the conversation with Ethan. He said, well, maybe I don't want to see that many role players go. And I said, all right, we'll have fun with 25 wins. If that's the the package that it it takes to get Ben Simmons, I think that's what you absolutely do. Uh, that's That's the kind of move that kind of reshapes what you're trying to do in Cleveland. Andre Drummond comes back next year, accepting his, uh, his player option. You've got Kevin Love. Uh, Colin Sexton's a very good offensive player. He's terrible defensively, but that's the kind of player you can hide in a starting lineup along with Ben Simmons. One thing we keep talking about, Ben Simmons is a popular player in the NBA circle. So, you know, he's the kind of guy that can lure a, a three and D wing over to Cleveland. And then one more draft, you know, maybe one year of that core and then another free agent signing. You're looking at a team that could do some damage in the Eastern Conference. Nick, if if we sort of build around that package, which would be the fifth pick, Darius Garland, Chetty Osman, and let's say Larry Nance Jr. gets thrown in there in exchange for Ben Simmons. Uh, first for the 76ers and then for the Cavaliers. What are these teams looking at in terms of in terms of potential playoff seeding or even making the playoffs next season? At this point, if uh, the Cavs were to go along with this trade and this type of trade that Luke mentions, which probably is the blueprint, occurs. I think uh, both these teams are looking for playoffs. I think um, the Cavs are in a weird position where they haven't been good um, without LeBron for a very, very long time. And um, that case is just when looking at the last couple of seasons when he left for the Lakers. You're looking at the next star to really build around. Kevin Love obviously isn't that. But you have a lot of front court depth already with Love, Thompson, and Andre Drummond. You get Ben Simmons into there, and that's you're turning into a leak, an elite category in terms of players on the front court that you can really try to work with. That being said, Ben Simmons now point guard, obviously. So I guess you can say tall players, if you want to call it that. You know, we're we're not on the radio anymore, so I can kind of freestyle a little bit. With uh, the Cavs getting Simmons, you're looking at the playoffs, I think. Sixers are kind of looking at the same thing because obviously the Ben Simmons Joel and B thing has not been working, and um, a shakeup is needed. And obviously with the firing of Brett Brown, um, that shakeup is uh, turning just with uh, this trade if it occurs. You know, I will say real quick, Daniel, I'm messing around right now with the NBA trade machine. And just because of the cap situation that the Sixers have, uh, I'm having a hard time making it work with the players that we're talking about, trying to move some money back and forth because both of these teams are very close to the cap. Uh, I threw in uh, Corkmoss to make things work on Miami's end. But as it stands right now, that pick plus Nance plus Garland plus Osmond for Simmons uh, and Cork Moss as well, uh, that's about $11 million more, if I'm correct, than the Sixers are allowed to acquire. So you're going to have to move some money around to make that trade work. Uh, somebody might have to be cut or bought out. Uh, but Al Horford. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Al Horford would make a ton of sense in that situation. My point is both teams are up against the cap, so more players would have to get moved than just that group. You know, like Josh Richardson might have to get moved because he's making $10 million right now. Uh, but it, it looks like, in theory, if I had more time and was able to do this in advance, that, that, that's something I think that realistically and financially uh, could be pulled off. Yeah, I think the 76ers are, are in a position right now where they're going to have to move guys around. They're going to have to move pieces around. Uh, Elton Brand said earlier today, I believe, that they're looking at keeping uh, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons both for the long term. But I, I'm not buying it if they find a package they like uh, from somebody like the Cleveland Cavaliers that they can can work the money into proper position. But uh, we, we've talked about this team. We talked a lot about them last week. The, the identity is gone. The, the process was a, a cute little marketing ploy for a while there. But this is a team that the past couple of years has had the, the kind of talent to contend, the kind of ability to contend. They've been in a position to make deep playoff runs. They're a Kawhi, a Kawhi Leonard shot last year away from a potential uh, finals appearance down the line. And they fall apart with the loss of Jimmy Butler, who's obviously an outstanding player. But you you try to mitigate that with with Al Horford, with with Mike Scott. Obviously, Matisse Thibel's a young guy that that is going to have an impact on this team moving forward. But you can't you can't expect to to make deep playoff runs when you're requiring so much of guys like Shake Milton and Josh Richardson, who are both young players that I like. But I just don't see this current iteration of the Philadelphia 76ers having success in the playoffs moving forward. And doesn't that just want to make you step on Elton Brand's neck? Ah, um, you took it ahead of me. <laughs> took it ahead um, of me. I look at the blueprint for this team, man. They draft Ben Simmons, who's this once-in-a-generation talent with how long he is and his ability to play the one. So you think he's the special matchup problem nightmare point guard of the future. And then they have no faith in him and take a point guard with a first pick in the draft a couple of years later. And then they trade that guy away as a salary dump before they tried to even develop him. And then they turn their offense over to two young guys, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, without a veteran presence at all. And then they bring one in with Jimmy Butler, and they can't afford to keep him because they're paying Tobias Harris ridiculous money for somebody who's never made an NBA All-Star team. And I hate that Tobias Harris has become the scapegoat for this because he's a good player. He would be a lot better if he wasn't in this organization, if he was in a system that fit what he did well. And then out of nowhere, they go ahead and give Al Horford $28 million a year, which we joked at the time they paid him just so they don't have to play against him. But now that's become an albatross around their neck. It's just such a shame for a team. You know, it's time to revisit the model that a lot of NBA teams were talking about that started with the Sixers about tanking. And they were tanking so poorly and ended up with two generational pieces in Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, who both arguably right now are top 20 NBA players, but they don't play well together. And then you sink so much money into slightly above average assets around him in Horford and Tobias Harris. The whole thing is a disaster. The plug, the, the plug needs to be pulled in this organization, and that starts by trading Ben Simmons. But, I mean, how can you rebuild with these terrible contracts? How can you move Al Horford? How can you move Tobias Harris, who's the second and third most guaranteed money in the NBA? It, it, it's just a mess. It, you look at the, the talent of the players that they get away. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be long-winded. Robert Covington, Dario Saric, J.J. Redick, Jimmy Butler. I mean, oh, my goodness. It's just a shame to 
to see those players go elsewhere and have success while this team is struggling to be a six seed. We've we've talked about this team ad nauseum, and like you said, Luke, there's not much more to go into with this team. It's it's just obviously not working. There's just something that doesn't click with this core, and they've overpaid guys that aren't fitting in to try to fix it. But we move on from that. We, we, we talk about the 76ers as being a team built around two stars with Ben Simmons and, and Joel Embiid. And, Nick, you're a big fan of a team that next year is going to be built around two stars, and that's Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, who both are going to hopefully be fully healthy and ready to go next season for the Brooklyn Nets. And this is a team that has a lot of pieces right now that are obviously – uh, having an impact in their playoffs, obviously get swept by the Toronto Raptors, but a, a strong performance nonetheless from a, a pretty well outgunned Brooklyn Nets team. But somebody that stood out here is Karis LeVert. And Karis LeVert, uh, me and Luke have talked about this before, uh, we're not necessarily sold on his fit alongside Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant because he has to have the ball in his hands so often. Uh, would you look for the Brooklyn Nets to trade Karis LeVert in the next year? Um, the NBA knowledge that I have, I would say yes, but as being a Brooklyn Nets fan, I hope not, you know, you know, sometimes when you're a fan, you don't make the best decisions. Right. But the best case scenario for me is if they put on the starting five of, you know, Irving, um, you throw Irving in there as the starter, rather, uh, Joe Harris, KD, you get those with Carousel coming off the bench, maybe as a potential six man or even sliding up the starting lineup as maybe the two guard. But as you mentioned, you know, there's only one ball on the floor. You're, you're going to have a lot of struggle getting him minutes. So I think moving him maybe to the six man would be the key. If they trade him, it's going to be for a position that they vitally need, which is another three and D wing defender. Um, there's a lot of candidates out there, a lot of potential buyers who obviously a lot of guys want Karis Silver based on how he played in the bubble. But as a, as a NBA fan, um, or rather a Nets fan, I, um, I really hope that doesn't happen because Levert's turned into a real fan favorite in Brooklyn. Luke Wiggs, tomorrow you were hired as the general manager of the Brooklyn Nets and nah, number now one. Now with Sean Marks, absolutely well. not. <laughs> Well, number one, riots. On, <laughs> number one on your list is the trade Karis LeVert. Who are you calling? What are you looking for? What are you trying to get back? Well, I just put the, together a trade in the ESPN NBA trade machine that uh, I think would uh, actually benefit both sides that we're talking about here. And it's a package that involves Karis LeVert, who his value is at an all-time high. I think that's something that Nick touched on, his ability to be a playmaker and his ability to score and play the one and the two. Uh, it, it's never going to be higher than it is right now. So I think now's the time to sell. But it, it's a package of Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, Rodiotis Karuks, and Timothy Luau Cabarro, who somehow for the sixth straight episode gets mentioned on this podcast. Yay, um, yay! Uh, and he and those four players get sent to Atlanta for John Collins, Kevin Herter, and a salary dump, but a player that I think could still be useful uh, in Brooklyn and Dwayne Dedman. I think John Collins' ability to be – you know, Nick said three and D. Uh, he's a more sure-handed rebounder, I think, than Jared Allen. He's an elite shooter from the corner. Look at his numbers from the past season. I don't have them in front of me right now, but how he was able to perform with Trey Young. With him off the floor, it was just a completely different look for that team. He's such a talented and such a capable young player. And Kevin Herter at the two. Uh, we need guys that can score in Brooklyn that don't require the ball in their hands a lot. 
That's why Nick will say that they're trying to bring back Joe Harris. Kevin Herter fits that mold as well as a player that can just come and give you and not so much three and D, more so just three. But Levert, Allen, Karuks, and TLC for Dwayne Dedman, John Collins, Kevin Herter. I make that trade tomorrow as the Nets general manager, and I've guaranteed myself a top three seed in the Eastern Conference and a very, very interesting matchup in the Eastern Conference semifinals uh, that would potentially put me in a position to win the East. Nick Severini as the heart the heartbeat of the Brooklyn Nets fan base, your thoughts on this trade. I really like it. You know, it it makes the Nets a better team and um, it would definitely lessen the blow. If we got all of those pieces at the end of the day, Um, last time you made a trade with Orlando, it was kind of disappointing based on uh, basically what the player turned into. Of course, I'm talking about Torian Prince, but obviously this time will be a lot different. Um, if uh, Luke Quicks was the general manager and I guess, you know, found some propaganda on Sean Marks that gave him the realm. Um, I would say that, uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, it would be a pretty good move for Brooklyn. Yes. But I would still, you know, there'd be a piece of my heart. That's a little bit torn apart there, to be honest. Well, guys, that is uh, kind of what I wanted to talk about with our little trade center discussion. Obviously as NBA rumors start kicking around a little bit more, the NBA draft starts coming closer. We'll, We'll open up the Trade Center a little bit more often, maybe even find some time to stick it on the main episode that'll get put out on the U92 airwaves. But the past few weeks, we have been using this bonus segment to talk about the NBA draft, and we're going to do it again today. We're going over the Pacific Division, and we've got the Pacific Division today, the Southwest Division next week, and then we are going to break it down in a full mock draft. We may have some special guests for that one, a full first-round mock draft for the NBA. Of course, with the lottery decided, we've got the NBA draft order already on top of us. So we start with the LA Lakers, the number one seed in the West, the number one team in the Pacific division. Guys, they've only got one pick in the draft. It's number 28, 28th pick of the first round. Luke, start with you. Los Angeles Lakers, are they looking to add with this pick? Are they looking to move this pick? What are they trying to do here in terms of adding to this roster? I really think they need to keep this pick, especially if they're going to keep Anthony Davis. I mean, a lot of people think that he might be lured away in free agency, but just, again, a thought exercise is assuming he's going to stay. I, I don't think they have the salary cap situation to afford to move this pick for a player that's going to be better. And, and in terms of what they need here at 28, that conversation starts and stops with a point guard. You know, Trey Jones, I know it's a little bit of a reach, and he's a guy we've touched on before. Rajon Rondo is a turnstile defensively, and Caruso is a valuable athlete, but really only so much off the bench. I look at Trey Jones as a guy that can come in, fill it up from beyond the arc, shoot as a rookie, minimum 35% from three, which is a much-needed piece for the Lakers. A traditional point guard that can go out and average you four or five assists, push the tempo, allow LeBron and Anthony Davis to work off the ball a little bit. That would be perfect. Uh, I just don't see a world. I know a lot of people think that they're going to put together some kind of package LeBron style to get himself another star. I don't see financially how that's going to stack up. So you're looking for a point guard at this pick. You know, Trey Jones is there. Devin Dotson is there. Jones would probably be my pick, even if it's maybe 10 picks ahead of where he should go. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think they definitely look point guard here for a guy that could have an instant impact that may not have the highest ceiling. Uh, it's somebody that I think, uh, it would probably be a reach at 28. I see this guy more as an early second rounder. Uh, but Cassius Winston out of Michigan State is somebody with a high floor that's going to be able to come on, uh, have opportunities on the second unit, 
shot 43% from three in college, uh, is, is able to pull up really well off of ball screens, is one of the best pick and roll guards in the draft. Uh, I really like what he would bring to the table. He's undersized at six foot one, but when you can shoot at the level he does, uh, I, I think that's good. And, and he's an experienced four-year player. Uh, I don't think he's by any means even going to be an NBA starter, but late in the first round, you're looking at guys who can contribute. And if you can find one in Cassius Winston that contributes right away, I think that's possibly what the Los Angeles Lakers could look for here. I mean, Nick, would you think they go with a different position or move this pick in that situation? Because those are two pretty good players, Winston and Trey Jones. Jones is a little bit bigger. That's why I said him. Uh, but, I'll, Nick, you have to wonder. I'll be honest. I Daniel took the words right out of my mouth with Cassius Winston. I think playmaker is the main key, someone off the bench that um, can really maneuver in a pick and roll like Daniel said. And I think Cassius Winston, with that experience from college, a four-year player, um, fits that mold perfectly for me. Nope. We move on from the Los Angeles Lakers. Number two team in the division is the Los Angeles Clippers. And this is the first time we've had this kind of come up in one of our draft segments. It's a team that doesn't have a first-round pick. They've only got one pick in the draft, 57th pick, second round, uh, fourth to last pick in the draft. So uh, unless the Clippers make a move, which with the way their core is set up, I'm not sure they're in a position to, guys. It doesn't look like they're probably, unless they hit the jackpot late in the second, going to be able to add a valuable piece that can contribute next year for the Los Angeles Clippers. Well, can I just say that NBA DraftNet or, or NBA Draft.net is probably one of the worst websites when it comes to, you know, mock drafts, but, and it's eerily creepy that they agree with me with this pick, but I'd love to see them swing for the fences and bring in Marcus Howard. I'm going to be banging that drum until somebody takes him and I'm wrong. Uh, I understand Lou Williams is already there, but he's a guy that can play the two. I, I, just an absolute home run pick of somebody that can get you potentially elite offensive production in the NBA level who's going to be overlooked because he's so small and he's not very good defensively. That's the kind of move you can afford to make when you have a roster that's as well put together and as deep as the Clippers to draft him, maybe put him in the G League for a year if he needs to develop. Uh, but we're looking at an NBA playoff with, with smaller guards like Seth Curry um, and, and other guys like that, that that have stepped into prominent roles. And uh, a player like Marcus Howard who could come off the bench with Landry Shamit and just be an absolute spark plug would be the difference maker in a series to get the Clippers out of the funk that they have in right now. Uh, so that's the kind of move I'd like to see them going with that late second rounder. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I could see them going in that realm. I could see them going with another point guard that's kind of fallen down around that position in Ashton Hagens uh, for very different reasons out of Kentucky. Uh, obviously, Patrick Beverly, they've seen – uh, him have a huge role in in Los Angeles with the Clippers, but they've missed him a lot in the playoffs. And with Ashton Higgins, he's a very similar player. He's a bit longer uh, than Patrick Beverly, actually, at six foot three hundred ninety eight pounds. Uh, he was one of the best defensive players in college basketball uh, this past year as a sophomore. And he's not a guy that's going to have a ton of offensive production. Uh, but when you have somebody with a signature skill like that uh, as a perimeter defender, the point guard position. Uh, he's somebody that I could see the Clippers valuing as a potential future rotation piece. Obviously, uh, his offensive game is far behind his defense, uh, but if that ever develops, he could be, I would say, a legitimate rotation piece in the NBA just because his defensive ceiling is so high. Yeah, I 100% agree with you there. And it, it's funny, Patrick Beverly was kind of the same kind of player. Uh, it took him going over to Europe for several years before he developed into the player before us. He needs to get better at shooting the ball. He turns the ball over a lot, but he can play make. 
Uh, six foot three, he's a physical guy, you know, and, and he's going to have something to prove being that late second round pick. He's going to play with a chip on his shoulder. I would pick him more as a UDFA. I mean, Marcus Howard might be too, my selection, uh, but that would make a ton of sense. As it's funny, we, we with the two LA teams, we start going back to back point guards here. Yeah, Nick, any other thoughts? Anything different you could see the Los Angeles Clippers doing late in this draft, trying to find some kind of value at 57? Probably look for a project in the backcourt. You know, one of the guards, obviously, in the long term, you'd like a little bit more depth at that position. Uh, Not to agree with you guys again, but I think the backcourt depth is uh, where the Clippers should try to capitalize on. So the third-place team in this division is the Phoenix Suns. Uh, They got a little bit of a nice payoff from the NBA draft lottery. They're going to pick 10th in this draft. And uh, I think with – where this draft is its deepest, I think they almost have to go point guard here. They're almost going to have almost have to have a point guard available to them that would be, uh, I would say, an enticing option. I think it's going to be Killian Hayes personally uh, if, that is going to be available there at number ten. I think he's a really good fit next to Devin Booker uh, because he's a guy that is definitely a pass first point guard, but he's got the ability to shoot from the perimeter. He's got the ability to create off the dribble. It's just a matter of refining those skills. And with somebody like Ricky Rubio that is a pass-first point guard that can help bring Killian Hayes along and help develop him not only as a point guard but also a foreign player coming into the United States and jumping right into the NBA life, I think that is is a really good fit for the Phoenix Suns. If Killian Hayes is available at 10, I think he will. But I could see him going off the board earlier. That'd be pretty wild. I mean, you look at uh, Kevin O'Connor from the ringer and Killian Hayes is his favorite prospect in this draft, which is just ridiculous. And that would be an interesting move there for Phoenix. I'd have to take this pick in a different direction, Daniel, one of two ways. Uh, I, I think number one, they more so look to add more defensive depth. You know, this is a team that doesn't get a ton of stops and it's kind of cool to see the role that Javon Carter's carved out for himself there because they're so star for defense. So, you know, and Okoro in that situation would be a ton of fun. Six foot six. We talk about his his length on the wing. Uh, and the other direction, there's a decent chance. I don't want to get too crazy because uh, we just had our NBA trade center, but there's a pretty good chance that uh, Devin Booker's not going to be on this team next year. So I could see them using this pick to draft his replacement. You know, we've talked about Aaron Neesmith a lot. Uh, a player like that, or Devin Vassell, who could maybe play the two if he's still there. Tyrese Maxey, Josh Green from Australia. Uh, if they move him, I could see 10 more so being addressed, unless they get the first pick and it's Anthony Edwards and whatever they're going to put together with maybe the Timberwolves. Uh, I could also see the pick being drafted should uh, Devin Booker be moved. Nick, what are you thinking about the Suns at 10? I'm thinking they go after Devin Vassell here. I think um, no matter what happens with Booker, I think they still need some more support on the wing, someone who could play maybe the three and it's like a three and D player. And uh, Vassell really fits that narrative well for them. So another guy who might be able to get some consistent minutes day one for um, Phoenix, I think that's a good place for him to go. Yeah, you guys bring up a lot of good points with that. I don't think uh, with the depth of this draft, it's not in the stars. I think there's a lot of role players that can be found towards the back end of that lottery. And I think that's what the Phoenix Suns are going to be able to do here is add somebody in that realm. And another team that's sitting in the back end of this lottery is the Sacramento Kings. They're in a little bit of a different position. They've got four picks in this draft, only one in the first round at number 12. But then they move into the second round at 35, 43, and 52. The Kings, they kind of took a step back this season with De'Aaron Fox kind of breaking out a year ago. 
You were expecting them to take a step forward. Obviously, Marvin Bagley's injury didn't help that at all. But they're in a position at number 12 where they made the NBA bubble but weren't able to sneak into that eight-seed conversation hardly at all. It's a team that still needs a little bit of identity, and I'm not sure you're going to find that at number 12. I'd like to see what you guys think about where they go with one of the last picks in the lottery. Honestly, I think at 12 they go BPA. They need a traditional big. That's the thing that screams out the most to me. But I think that they could address that with one of their later picks. You mentioned the bevy that they have in the second round, the guys that are going to be available, Petrusev, Stewart. Uh, Pokusevsky is a guy we've talked about a lot, would be a cool little uh, fit for them to have multiple second-round picks and use one uh, on on a prospect like that would be a ton of fun. But at 12, uh, Nick just said Devin Vassell, if he falls past Washington and falls back, Phoenix would be a good player there. Uh, they're going to have to shell out in free agency to bring back Bogdan Bogdanovich. He's a restricted free agent. I get that. But they're going to have to match an offer sheet that I'm guessing is going to be upwards of 14 or $15 million. If they don't do that, then they need that pick to be on the wing. And Vassell would make a ton of sense there for them as well. Uh, but, you know, Patrick Williams is becoming the darling of this draft all of a sudden. I don't know if he's going to fall all the way to them at 12. That's a very Kings pick, if you ask me. Pressure's a chew in that range as well. I just think you address center later on in the draft. Uh, maybe you have the capital to move up. This would be one of my favorite team targets to move up in the draft. But I, I think they go big in second round, and I think they just go best player available, which uh, based on the players in that range at 12 is probably going to be somebody on the wing. Yeah, I like Patrick Williams uh, to the Kings. Like you said, there's a lot of helium in draft circles for him, uh, possibly moving up into the top 10 uh, after kind of finishing the college basketball season is sort of a mid first round pick. But if the Kings can get him at 12, I like his value as the second youngest player in his draft class. Uh, he's a guy that uh, despite struggling a little bit, uh, shooting the ball at Florida state in one year, he did it confidently and he shot 84% at the free throw line as well. He's six, eight, 225 pounds, seven foot wingspan that, that can guard a lot multiple positions his his offensive game is going to have to come along uh, but if he can come in as as a potential defensive stopper uh, a switchable perimeter defender who can kind of come into his own in an offensive role in the next couple of years I think he's certainly a guy that I think the Kings would be thrilled to have at number 12. And Nick don't you see a lot of similarities with Dallas in, in that team and their inability in Sacramento to get stops you know, De'Aaron Fox is something special, and I think he's going to develop into a better defender as, as time continues. But Buddy Heald finished the season coming off the bench. If they bring back Bogdanovich, I really don't think he's much of a stopper. So, you know, you'd have to think also on the wing that defense is going to be a decent priority. That's something that Patrick Williams or Vassell could fill. I know you're high on Vassell, as am I. Uh, but, but defensively, it is another situation you'd think Sacramento would have to address if they want to contend in the West. Yeah, Luke, it's tough because – it's very easy to go three and D again, similar to Phoenix and get someone like Devin Vassell, but you're right. That defense is still a really big issue and a focus on defense for this pick might be key. And that's where Patrick Williams obviously comes into play. Still very young, you know, but a very high ceiling, especially in the defensive front. I think that might be where they want to go. Well, we move on to the final team, the Pacific division. And it's the team with the most interesting decision on the table, the golden state warriors. Uh, they obviously fall from grace this year, one of the worst teams in the league, a lot of injuries, just everything kind of broke wrong for Golden State. That's one of the stories of this year. Anybody who's been paying attention to the NBA doesn't need me to tell them that. They've got the second pick, the 48th, and the 51st. Obviously, that second pick is probably going to be the topic of discussion 
for most of the time leading up to the draft, whether they trade it to add uh, to that roster alongside Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, uh, whether they add somebody like James Wiseman to, to nail down their uh, center spot. What do you guys think the Golden State Warriors are doing with pick number two? I would be shocked if the Golden State Warriors on draft night are picking at number two. Whether or not they put that together in a super package, everyone claims that the reason they traded for Wiggins is because they're going to go after Giannis. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would trade what would amount to LaMelo Ball and uh, Andrew Wiggins for Giannis. Uh, But more likely than that, I think this is a situation where you need to land on this pick. You know, this Golden State team, they're going to have their guys coming back, but they're all getting up there in age. You know, Clay and Steph and Draymond Green all sitting, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And you need to maximize on the window of them being in their prime while you can. And I think that the player that best does that is James Wiseman. And I don't necessarily think that you need to take him at two if you're Golden State. So I think you'd reach out to a Chicago or maybe not the Knicks because I don't think he's going to fall to eight, but to one of these guys and say, hey, you know, the, you got bumped from the lottery if you're somebody like the Bulls. Here's an opportunity for you to jump up and take the LaMelo ball that you wanted to take or Obi Toppin or whoever, trade down to five, pick up an extra asset, and then just take da- James Wiseman. I think he's a polished big. I think, uh, again, he's not somebody that's going to need a ton of touches in this offense to be efficient. I think he's somebody that comes in immediately and, and makes this one of the best, if not the best, starting fives in the NBA. And with a player like Pascal coming off the bench, and you mentioned, Daniel, the two second-round picks that they have in their possession that they can turn into, you know, a backup two-guard, another buddy, another body 3 and D player on the wing, it would make them back to the dominant force that they were a couple of seasons ago. I think Wiseman pushes that needle more than anybody else, save Anthony Edwards, who I think is a lot going off the board uh, first overall, whether the Timberwolves take him or trade that pick to somebody else. So James Wiseman made a ton of sense, and I don't think you need number two to take him. Yeah, that's. I think this pick gets moved, whether it is for another uh, veteran player or it is moving down in the draft. I think that's what we most likely see happen with Golden State. Uh, Nick, I'd like to, to get your thoughts on the possibility of the Golden State Warriors uh, moving off of the second pick and what you would like to see them do with it if they do. The plan, first and foremost, should be the, to get James Wiseman um, in this draft. If, um, if they're able to trade uh, down in the draft, maybe four or five, and still manage to get Wiseman, I think they're the winners of this entire draft. Because with Wiseman, you get a player who probably starts that team um, day one for that Golden State team and gives you a lot of potential in an area where they really haven't had it in a very long time in Golden State. And it gives them another angle on where to attack from so I agree that uh, them keeping number two pick is very unlikely but if they're able to get Wiseman in this draft no matter how they're able to do it that's a big threat for them I would agree with you there that is is the key for James Wiseman to me or excuse me for the Golden State Warriors to me is to get James Wiseman and nail down their center position and potentially have a future star beyond the days of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Obviously, those guys aren't over the hill in terms of potential, but certainly the day is going to come where they're not there and they need another star. And I think James Wiseman, with the right development, without being thrown into too high leverage of a role, could potentially be that guy. You know, could I just say this really quickly? Um, If James Wiseman goes to Golden State, James Wiseman, I would – I'm not a betting man. James Wiseman is going to win Rookie of the Year. I mean, that's such a good fit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Anthony Edwards is the best prospect, don't get me wrong, but he's so raw 
if he goes to Minnesota, they already have Beasley there. They already have Bilo. I don't think he's going to play the minutes that Wiseman is going to get. And he's playing with two of the best passers in the NBA, and Draymond Green and Steph Curry. Pick and roll, the ability that he's going to be able to have a ton of one-on-one matchups in the low post. James Wiseman, for me, would be an early front runner without question for Rookie of the Year and such a, such a great fit. There you have it, the final word on Episode 6 of Beyond the Arc. Luke Wiggs, if James Wiseman is in a Golden State <laughs> Warriors jersey, he is a Rookie of the Year favorite. There you have it. That'll do it for Episode 6 of Beyond the Arc. Uh, again, you're listening to this on the podcast version. You can listen to us every Wednesday on U92 from 10 to 11 a.m. Obviously, you're going to get the shortened version. You're going to get it without the bonus podcast exclusive segment of which we had two today a little bit of a different uh, change up there as we were a little hard pressed for time when it came to the radio version but we appreciate you listening uh, check us out on spotify u92 soundcloud apple podcasts anywhere you can get your podcast you're going to find beyond the arc leave us a review leave us a rating we always appreciate it we're just three college kids trying to get by uh, so we appreciate you taking some time out to listen to the show. This has been episode six of Beyond the Arc presented by U92 The Moose.